This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Carlos Cagina is our technical producer tonight, and Ryan White is the live stream producer. Check out my YouTube and Rumble channels at Strange Planet. Jesse James was an American outlaw, bank and train robber, some say a guerrilla, and leader of the James Younger gang, raised in the, uh, the little Dixie area of western Missouri, and uh, James and his family maintained strong Southern sympathies. He and his brother Frank James joined pro-Confederate bushwhackers, as they were called, operating in Missouri and Kansas during the American Civil War and uh, were followers of uh, William Quantrill and and, uh, Bloody Bill Anderson, according to uh, legend. We're going to separate some fact from fiction a little bit later. They were accused of of committing atrocities against Union soldiers and civilian abolitionists, including... um, a massacre that supposedly took place in uh, in 1864, the Centralia Massacre. After the war, as uh, members of various gangs of outlaws, Jesse and Frank robbed banks, stagecoaches, trains across the Midwest, gaining national fame and other, and often uh, popular sympathy. And uh, the James brothers were mo- most active as members of their own gang from about 1866 until 1876, when as a result of their attempted robbery of a bank in Northfield, Minnesota, Several members of the gang were captured or killed. Uh, They continued in crime for several years afterwards, recruiting new members, but came under increasing pressure from law enforcement seeking to bring them to justice. And then, according to the official narrative, on April 3rd, 1882, Jesse James was shot and killed by Bob Ford, a new recruit to the gang who hoped to collect a reward on James' head and a promised amnesty for his previous crimes. Already a celebrity in life, James became a legendary figure of the Wild West after his death. So how much of the legend surrounding Jesse James is true? The story of James' assassination at the hands of uh, Bob Ford has been clouded with mystery ever since its inception. And tonight, James' great-great-grandchildren, Daniel and Teresa Duke, 
present the results of more than 20 years of exhaustive research into state and federal records, photographs, newspaper reports, diaries, a 1995 DNA test in search of the truth behind Jesse James' demise. They'll explain how the accepted version of the history of Jesse James is wrong. The authors confirm their family's oral tradition that James faked his own death in 1882 and lived out his remaining days in Texas. And they methodically unravel the legend surrounding his death with evidence vetted by qualified experts and civic authorities. They share the journal of their great-great-grandfather kept from 1871 to 1876 and verified to be written in James' own handwriting. They reveal forensically confirmed photographs of James before and after his supposed killing, including one of James attending his own funeral. And uh, we'll discuss how this train and bank robbing ancestor, again, faked his death in 1882, lived out his remaining years as a wealthy farmer in Texas. And uh, we may have time to discuss his previously unknown connections to other historical figures, secret societies, lost treasures, and hidden agendas. Teresa and Daniel Duke are writers, researchers, and again, the great-great-grandchildren of the outlaw Jesse James and uh, the um, author, authors, co-authors of The Mysterious Life and Fake Death of Jesse James. Daniel Duke is the author of Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure and the brand new book, Secret History of the Wild, Wild West. Teresa and Daniel Duke, welcome. How are you? Thank you for having us on the show. My pleasure. You're both in different parts of Texas tonight, I understand. Yes, sir. Uh, So let me me begin. I I gave a bit of a a brief summary of, of Jesse James, but we need to separate fact from fiction but let's let's start uh you know with his i guess his his early years and then uh the the post-civil war years um who wants to start with that one i can i'm more than happy to do that um okay um well you know jesse uh, as the we never the uh traditional history on when how he started out we've never differed on it's uh you know, he was a young boy when the, the Civil War, actually fighting before the Civil War had ever started, had started in Missouri and in western Missouri and eastern Kansas along the border uh, almost 10 years before the official beginning of the Civil War. And it was, a, you know, it was mostly fighting between uh, slavery and anti-slavery states. So, you know, there were, there were people involved in the politics of both, uh, in, on both sides. And they started raiding back and forth of the, the infamous John Brown, who would kill people and free their slaves. But uh, there, there was a lot of, there was a, a just a lot of fighting about for about a decade before that had started. Uh, around just after the start start of the Civil War, Frank James, who was the older brother of the two, uh, he took off. He joined the Confederate Army. Um, he was fighting. Guerrillas from western or from Kansas, they they called them red legs, had ridden onto the James farm, and Jesse, who was too young to fight, he was too young to fight with the uh, Confederate army. He was plowing in in the in his fields on the family farm, and the uh, red legs had strapped him. Were said to have strapped him to his plow and beat him severely. They rode to the house. They beat his mother. 
And accounts vary on, she was pregnant at the time, but accounts vary on how severe she was beat. Some said she was just pushed around. Others said they strapped her to a tree and horse whipped her. But they did hang the stepfather, not until he was dead, but until he had brain damage. Uh, They said they were looking for Frank and nobody would tell, so they made them pay. Well, Jesse, you know, that was a rough area in a different time. He grew. Up, he wanted revenge, and he tried to join the army. They wouldn't let him. He was too young, and he finally found a group who would who would let him join, and that was Quantrell's guerrillas. Um, he, he proved to to have been a you know good at what he did. They trained him well, and they killed a lot of people. I mean, they it was bad on both sides, but at the time, it wasn't so much with Jesse. It wasn't so much politics as just protecting his family and getting vengeance. Um, right. For so example, it, like the, his sympathies, oh, his sympathies with the South had nothing to do with the, the whole question about slavery or abolition. It had more to do with vengeance for the way that the Union soldiers had treated his his own family. Exactly. Right. It was survival uh, at that point. Right. They were right. Uh, treated so bad and harassed. And yeah, I mean, so at that point, it was just more just survival. More than about, you know, the slavery and choosing sides. They were just fighting to live. <laughs> right. And there's a wonderful um, uh, diary entry from in the in the book that uh, Jesse's mother um, wrote about sending him off on a horse. What was he, 14 or 15? Uh, just this skinny little uh, kid. And uh, yeah. he came back, what, a couple years later, and she didn't even recognize him except for his blue eyes. Yeah, that's right. They said uh, they said or she was said to have been quoted as saying things like you know the the bush was good for him uh, he was you know out in the I guess the that way of he grew and he looked he he grew into manhood before he was officially a man but he was he was bigger than most men at the time uh, mm-hmm. well and another example I wanted to to mention on that the the political side of it like Cole Younger and the Younger Brothers mm-hmm. who later joined the James Gang and became part of the James Younger Gang. They were Union supporters until Union-backed guerrillas from Kansas murdered their father and robbed and murdered him. And and then they torched the uh, Younger's home later and burned their their home down. And that's when Cole Younger and the Younger brothers had joined up with Quantrill's guerrillas also, just looking for revenge. It wasn't really politics with with them and a lot of other people in that area. It was more survival. During the Civil War, uh, Jesse was shot uh, and received a, a, an injury to his lung, not once, but twice, I believe, correct? Yeah, he was trying to surrender. Um, and that was the other thing. They they did want to, they did try to do the right thing. Um, they were going to surrender, but they got, he got shot and, you know, they they were trying to like just kill him, but they were trying to do the right thing, and they were just kind of forced into doing the out the outlaw life that they led. Right. So after the civil, uh, the end of the civil war, uh, Frank and Jesse are are they still with the guerrillas at that point? The uh, the Quantrill Rangers, uh, I think, as they were known. Yeah, they were with uh, Quantrill's guerrillas up until the the very end. Um, and then, you know, all the guerrillas separated and went their own ways after that. A lot of them went to Texas, um, which is the direction Frank and Jesse went later. Uh, 
Frank Moore, Je- Jesse settled in Texas permanently, but that was years later. Um, it, it was it, most of the guerrillas were, you know, if they turned themselves in, they were usually executed in one way or another. And if they didn't turn themselves in, they were hunted down and executed that way as well. So, right. So there was brand, they weren't granted amnesty, Frank and Jesse. So the Civil War really never ended for them in, in many respects. That's true. And the way I often look at Jesse, it reminds me of, you know, you see news stories of wars today with children, you know, child soldiers. And that that's basically what a lot of people were here during the Civil War. And Jesse was, I consider him a child soldier. And that that's, you know, during the, those years, that's got to that's got to change the mindset of a kid, and, you know, I guess for the rest of their life in a lot of cases. Teresa and Daniel Duke, the great-great-grandchildren of the outlaw Jesse James and uh, co-authors of The Mysterious Life and Faked Death of Jesse James. Daniel is uh, the author of Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure and the brand-new book, Secret History of the Wild, Wild West. So the um, the first uh, bank robbery credited to the um, the James gang just after the Civil War ended, I guess, around 186, February 1866. Not only the first robbery accredited to the James Gang, it's considered to be the first successful peacetime daylight bank robbery. Tell me about it. That's true. You want to take that, Teresa? Uh, yeah, I just, I, <laughs> well, I know they, that, they, you know, it was just the, the gang, um, they were going in to do the robberies, but the robberies weren't for just because they were bank robbers. They had a higher reason as we, me and Dan, Danny and me kind of discovered later throughout the research that um, they were doing it all for a higher purpose. Um, throughout history, they were, you know, people try to just say, oh, they were just bank robbers, no good bank robbers, but we discovered it was more than just, they were doing it for a higher purpose. All right. Well, we'll definitely get into that a little bit later. So this was the Liberty, uh, the Liberty Bank robbery. Um, now, some there was some bystanders. Some bystanders was was it this robbery that there were some bystanders killed or by uh, young bystanders or was that later? There was a young man killed. Um, they they'd written into you know and it was they, they were still fresh out of the war. They had ridden in. Um, the the young man killed was 16 years old, and he couldn't. He apparent some say he didn't understand what they were saying. Now, Cole Younger kept telling him to get out of the way. He didn't get out of the way, so Cole Younger shot him. Um, and it was just that matter of fact, cold blooded. You know, he just shot him. They weren't angels by any means, but just trying to. I always I try to be you know remain open minded about that. But the thing that got me, um, we went up. We, you know, we, we, we've toured the Liberty Bank. Um, I, they Allegedly, afterwards, Jesse had written a letter apologizing and signed the letter, you know, said that they didn't want to kill anyone, it was an accident, et cetera, and he signed it. I asked for, you know, a copy of the letter to see, or, or just to let me take a photo of it, and they said it, it um, upset the owner of the museum so much that he didn't, he didn't display it. And I thought that's kind of strange. You have a museum talking all of you know where you're telling the story, but the letter upsets you too much. I just I was I wanted my whole goal at that point was just to get 
a sam- you know, a, an allegedly known sample of Jesse's handwriting to compare it against handwriting that we'd had. We found it later through other means, but that was one of our first attempts. And I just thought that was interesting that they would say a letter would cause him so much pain he didn't want to display it. And this was years later. He'd never even met the guy. Um, right. But he didn't have a problem they were having descendants, a museum. They were the descendants of the of the, uh, the young man that was killed during the robbery. They opened up a museum. Was it a, in a building across the street from the Liberty Bank eventually? That's right. And, there was, there's a museum, and, and then the, we also toured the bank building. So is it possible they didn't want to – they didn't want to – um, display the letter because, in their according to their narrative, Jesse James was not you know America's Robin Hood. He was a ruthless killer. Uh, they That's didn't right. want they didn't want to muddy the water in terms of their narrative. That you know here he is showing contrition, showing you know uh, regret that this young man was killed, and he and he actually sent them a letter to apologize. That's true. That, yeah, that, but also, so, it all depends yeah. on the perspective. Like you said, you know, some people believe he was a cold-blooded murderer, and others were like, you know, they were kind of forced into this by what was done to them throughout their lives during the border so war. At, sorry, sorry, go, go ahead, Teresa. Oh, no, that I just, you know, like you said, you brought up a good point. It's all on, uh, everyone has their own perspective. Some think he was a cold-blooded killer, and others, uh, you know, view him as a, a hero. <laughs> right, right. And so there's a, a rather lengthy list of some of the, um, you know, I don't know if it's all-inclusive. It looks pretty uh, inclusive. All of the, uh, the the banks, the Hughes and Wasson Bank in Richmond, Missouri, May 22nd, 1867. Uh, the Nimrod Long and Company Bank, and you, you list how much money they um, – you know, they they took uh, and one was something. I think that first that Liberty Bank robbery, they took something like was it sixty sixty thousand sixty thousand mm-hmm. back. Yeah, in I think 18. it was around sixty thousand. And I I also just kind of wanted to clear up one thing. Um, also, you know, when records also kind of indicate that when that uh, uh, the cashier was shot and killed, um, it wasn't like they were directly like aiming the gun to murder him it was they were shooting off their guns to create a diversion so to cake to create chaos so they could get away and that's when it was like a stray bullet that's what some research says okay. it, there's, there's varying accounts directly. on what actually happened yeah All right i'm sh- I'm sure. Uh, then there were the train robberies, the Chicago, Rock Island, and Pacific Rail- Railroad train robbery uh, in 1873. They took six thousand dollars. Were they also were they also getting uh, gold at this point? Gold coins, gold ingots. It's said by some. Uh, well, there's a lot of legends claiming that they got you know gold, gold bars, gold ingots. There, I've even had people, other researchers. Um, and I, they didn't have anything to verify this, though. They would claim that there were, you know, Confederate sympathizers in California who would have gold mines, and when they would ship their gold back to the east, they'd let, you know, they, it was insured. So when the James Gang would rob that gold shipment, um, they would take it, bury it, and the, the guy who, you know, the original owner got the insurance for it, so they, he never really lost anything. So in a way, they were doubling their money. Um I never, 
I'd never, that's just one theory, and that wasn't mine. I'd, I'd heard that from a couple of other researchers. But, and it's interesting to think of. I guess it's a possibility. But When did they, the um, – oh, we're ahead. all familiar with the Pinkerton men. Uh, these were – this was a uh, – you know, after the stagecoaches started getting robbed and the trains getting robbed and banks started getting robbed, you had this – we now know, you know, Pinkerton's as a security firm, but they were – I guess were they a creation of the the banks and the stagecoach companies to go after the robbers? Who who formed the Pinkerton oh, so, men? Well, the Pinkertons were were uh, they they gained their their reputation from they were in a sense Secret Service during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. They had even, uh, Alan Pinkerton was credited with you know uh, basically protecting the president and others. Uh, General just he, he they were kind of like a Secret Service before. The Secret Service ever existed, and then the uh, Rockefellers would also hire them for different things, which is also where they probably, in in some opinions, that's where they entered the stage with the James Boys because interests, uh, moneyed interests around the country were losing money, not only because it had been robbed, but just because people people didn't trust the the trains to safeguard their their belongings, you know, their their valuables. And it got so bad at one point, trains started routing around Missouri. They wouldn't, they didn't want to go through Missouri because they thought they'd get robbed. Right. Yeah, and a um, combination. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> like Danny said, a little bit of all of them that kind of like got together and like, hey, we got to stop this. Yeah. Right. It, and um, we're, we're rolling into a break here at the bottom of the uh, the hour. Um, when we come back, we'll we'll talk about how the uh, the, the Pinkertons. Uh, targeted the James home and um, what happened to uh, Zarelda James Samuel, who was Jesse's mother. And that what happened to her is actually important later in identifying um, both of you as his great, great grandchildren. We'll uh, we'll discuss some photographic evidence as well. And uh, we were talking about the Pinkertons. Um, They went after the uh, the James well, I guess by this time, um, uh, Zarelda had remarried. This was her third marriage to uh, a Samuels, and so it was the Samuels home. Um, mm-hmm. Didn't they firebomb the house? Yes. Yeah, um, yes. There were, oh, go ahead, Danny. Well, sorry. Of, I'm sorry. <laughs> a lot of people. Had, uh, the Pinkertons had been after the James boys, and there was one one younger Pinkerton agent had uh, stopped in. Outside, it was called the the Arthur House, uh, Arthur House actually, Arthur House, and it was um, a like a stable and a, they had a diner. You could stay for the night. And the, the guy w- went in that he wanted a meal, and while he was eating, he was bragging about uh, you know he was going to be the one to help bring the James boys down. Well, the guy he was bragging to who owns the place was a uh, W. J. Courtney. He was a former sheriff in Liberty County, um, so. Mr. Courtney was also close friends and relatives with the James boys. He he allegedly, uh, well, he served the, that Pinkerton detective his last meal because the next day the man was found dead on the side of the road. And a lot of people said, you know, he relayed the message to the James boys or some of his friends, and they 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 killed the agent. A year less, it was about a year later. Um, that's when the Pinkertons snuck up to the James farm in the night, thinking, allegedly thinking that James, Jesse and Frank were at the farm, and they threw a bomb. At first it was said it was just Greek fire to light the place up so they could see. 
um, year, years later, about 20 years ago, a researcher had uncovered documents showing that they knew it was a bomb. They threw the bomb through the window. Um, Zarelda tried to, she was trying to knock the bomb into the fireplace, you know, just real, real quick getting it out of the way, and it exploded. It killed her nine-year-old son, which was Jesse and Frank's half-brother, half uh, Archie Samuels, and it, it blew her arm off, and it maimed their uh, stepfather's hand, Dr. Reuben Samuels. So that the, yeah, the, uh, the Zarelda's missing the arm, this is going to be key in in sort of establishing uh, that Jesse James is your great great grandfather, and we'll get around to that. But um, okay. I, I want to just kind of switch gears now and and talk about um, or move ahead to how it is um, that you established, or I guess your mother really, um, your mother was kind of leading the way in this regard. Uh, how she established, first of all, or first learned that Jesse was your great-great-grandfather. She had, yeah, our late mother, Betty Dorsett Duke, had, had uh, she had grown up her whole life hearing the stories that Jesse James was their ancestor and that he'd faked his death and didn't die, as history said. And, um, you know, every time there was a family get-together around holidays or, or anything, they those stories were always retold. Um, so, you know, she grew up believing that, but when she got into high school and she was reading history and, you know, the history book said Jesse was killed. So she wanted to know, um, which was right, the family story or the, the traditionally accepted story. And she didn't have time. You know, she had me and my brother and sister. And when we got into college, she finally had time to start researching it. And uh, she got all the evidence from the family that she could get and evidence that had been passed down to her and took the photos. And she was looking at the photos, and, you know, it amazed her that they did look alike. But she she knew she needed more than just her her word. Uh, so she took the photos to the uh, Texas Parks. It was a Texas Department of Public Safety. They're our version of the state police. And at their forensic lab, and they had – they had, their forensics – Forensic experts had verified that our family photos matched Jesse, you know, known photos of Jesse, and a historically accepted photos of him and his family members. So she went then to the uh, Austin Police Department forensic, photo, forensic photography lab, and they also verified it. She went to a third group called, back then it was Visionics. Um, yeah, Visionics. They were world leaders in facial recognition technology, and they sold their program, you know, their software to government agencies and airports around the world. Well, they also verified that our photographs matched our family photographs matched the historically accepted photographs of Jesse and some of his family members. So we went. You know, she was excited. She thought, okay, that you know, that's a big, that's, that's a huge step forward in proving that the family lore was right and traditional history was wrong, and she thought people would be excited about it. So she called the James Farmer Museum in Missouri, and that's the last thing they wanted to hear. Um, sure. And that, that's when the walls started going up. Every, you know, any time you would try to talk to them, they just put a wall up real quick. So, uh, and but, it so wasn't she, just the faces that they compared, like the photos. They did compare the photos, but it was also... Um, there was a photo of Zerelda, an uh, historically accepted photo of Zerelda with the dress on with a certain print. 
and we found a photo in our rec, uh, in our collection of his mother with the same print, and we had that uh, examined, and the, you know they they said that's the same print, same dress. So we had yeah. that as well. Right. So yeah, this so is they, your. You know, this would the, be your great 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 grandmother. Who, right. who was right. Jesse James' mother, Zerelda, and she had an alias, and we'll explain that in a, in a moment as well. But getting back to the Pinkerton bombing the James farm, and it was her right arm that was taken off, was it? That was always a, a point of contention. We knew, like, even, even with the James farm, they would always ask, which arm was it? Which arm was it? And based on different photographs and the way the, the clothing um, like women's clothing, their buttons are on the left side, whereas men's were traditionally on the right side. And the clothing at the time, we believed it was the left arm. Uh, but there's 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 still controversy over that. Which when you get you you can go on the internet and find forums where people just fight like cats and dogs over which arm it was. And the point we were trying to get you know get across to them at the time was the faces match. They have the same dress, and they're both, you know, and they're both missing the same arm. It, and right. they, what are they the odds to, that you would have a great great grandmother, great 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 grandmother, missing an arm, wearing the same style dress, who bears a striking resemblance to Jesse James' mother? Now, in in one photograph, you know, oh wait a minute, your great 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 grandmother is missing her left arm, and and Zerelda was missing her right arm, but then you discovered that the the negative. As, as often happened, uh, they got reversed, right? It got flipped over. You were able to identify exactly. that by the, as you mentioned, the exactly. buttons on a woman's dress should be on the left it, side. Exactly, and it was a little known, little known facts like that. You, you know, we would keep digging. It's like we know it's the same people. I mean, the rest of the family also matches, according to forensic experts. So we kept looking, and I remember mom was like, "Oh my God, it was reversed." So, <laughs> and you know, looking at when. It, the buttons were all on the same side. I thought that 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 was there were a million little keys throughout the years, just little little pieces of information like that that would always propel the story forward. But it, it was it's interesting how that works out. Right. So I mean, you established in this case, and you are the great great granddaughters of Zarelda James Samuel and the great great grandchildren of Jesse, but then. To go from that to establish that Jesse James did not die in 1882 at the hands of, of Bob Ford, uh, faked his death, um, took his his wealth and, and his 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 plunder, I guess, if you will, gold and and so forth, and lived out his remaining years in Texas. I mean, remaining years, he lived to be almost a hundred. I mean, that's an yeah. entirely different matter right did you have to establish that he faked That's his true. death and and uh let's let's start to talk about that so okay. 1882 april 3rd uh set this up for us who's bob ford and and what happened suppose according to the official narrative okay uh bob and charlie ford were allegedly recruited by jesse james to be a part of his new gang because the old gang had fallen apart after a failed robbery in northfield minnesota so he was looking for a new gang. According, this is the, the official story. Um, he he recruited Bob and Charlie Ford. They grew up in the area. Um, they there, there were a, there was fighting within the group. There was a guy named Dick Little, and um, 
there, he had supposedly started talking out of fear to the governor. Well, Bob and Charlie Ford were allegedly working undercover for the governor of Missouri, Governor Crittenden, who, by the way, was a distant cousin to Jesse and Frank, I found out later, which blew my mind. But anyway, he uh, Crittenden had a reward on their heads just because they wanted you know, the railroads, all the political reasons and monetary reasons. They were hurting the economy of the entire state. So uh, Bob and Charlie Ford paid, you know, they're working undercover. They were supposed to bring Jesse in dead or alive, and they knew it wouldn't be alive. So according to the the official narrative, Jesse was in his house under the name of, uh, he was under an alias in St. Joseph, Missouri. He steps up on a stool to dust a photo, a, a picture, they called it a sampler. Um, it was like home sweet home type thing, embroidered and hung up on the wall. So he's, he's going to dust that off or straighten it, and the accounts vary on that. Um, he steps up on the stool to take care of the, the sampler, and they shot him in the back of the head. And they run, they run out of the house, uh, went down to the police, you know, the sheriff's office. The sheriff arrests them. And that, you know, that started the whole thing. This is a short segment, incidentally. We've got about five and a half minutes here. But uh, when we left, Bob Ford, who was sort of working undercover, I guess, for the governor in uh, Missouri, because uh, they had to they had to get rid of the James gang. They were doing some serious damage to the uh, economy with all of these bank robberies and train robberies. Uh, a, uh, a surprisingly domesticated Jesse James gets, gets up on a a, uh, a chair to dust a picture on the wall and uh, Bob Ford shoots him in the back of the head, runs down to the sheriff's department and then is arrested. Um, okay. So let's pick it up from there, Daniel or Teresa. Okay. Well, after they were arrested, then there was, you know, call for pe- people wanted them killed after the word hit the streets and, and pe- you know, people were excited. People wanted to see the body, that kind of thing. Um, they had sent for a, a special train to bring Jesse's mother up to uh, St. Joseph to identify the body. So, so Zerelda gets there. They walk her in. She, the first thing she says, she looks down at the body and says, "Gentlemen, you're mistaken. That is not my son." And she walks. You know, she's walked. She's escorted out of the the house. She comes back in a few minutes later. And said, you know, you shot my poor baby. That's my son. And she was cursing them. And it was, a, it, they, according to eyewitnesses at the time, it was a huge, it was a huge show. I mean, real dramatic. And I thought that was interesting. You know how she looked at him, flatly said, "That's not my son." And then later, a few minutes later, she's cursing them and crying and, and wailing. Um, then they had the coroner's inquest a couple of days later, uh, where. His alleged wife, Z. Mims, who, by the way, was Jesse's first cousin, um, she she didn't know his age, uh, what finger on which hand would have been missing. She'd allegedly had two kids with him, but didn't know how old he was or if he had a, a fingertip missing or not. And if so, on either, you know, she didn't know which hand it would have been on. There was a lot of details she didn't know about Jesse. Yet she could identify each piece of jewelry she said was missing down to fine detail, and I, I thought that was interesting. There was a lot of, a lot of hints and clues and, and discrepancies that were never, they they just it just kind of got rushed through. They had people uh, identify the body when they put it on display. Um, 
you know, they had people, uh, known gang members come through or people who rode with him when back in the Civil War. And they said, yeah, that's Jesse. Well, the thing is, the only people who really knew what Jesse looked like was his family and his immediate, uh, his close friends who were also his gang members. So they, knowing that Frank James was still out there, a lot of them, either out of loyalty and or fear, probably would have been afraid to say, yeah, that's Jesse. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of different cases where they could have said yes or no, but the fact is there were very few people who knew Jesse. Even the Pinkertons who'd been chasing them and they were allegedly the best in the country, they didn't even have a good description of Jesse. Um, Why is that? Why is there. that? I mean, there is. Uh, he was tall, right? Uh, was he six foot? Yeah, uh, Jesse was. He was a tall man, and there, we'd found a lot of references throughout from the Civil War and throughout his history, his known history, that he was a tall, slender, finely built man. Um, and even then, some of the um, accounts from people who were robbed were saying, like when the journalist would um, ask them to report what happened, they would even describe them as tall men, like six foot and over. They they didn't say, you know, they, they would say that they were like tall and finely built but not not short like history uh reported jesse to be well and even jesse's mother zarelda was six foot tall and jesse was taller than her i mean she'd even mentioned how he he was taller than her when he came back you know after after that long period of time where she didn't see him during the civil war he came back and he was a tall man um and then there's there were a lot of people trying to claim he was a short man. I'm not sure who put that out there in the beginning, but it, it served to just basically just confuse a lot of people. Right. I think, yeah. And he sort of helped sow the seeds of that confusion as well. I mean, from what I understand from reading uh, your account that, that um, it, sometimes they didn't even use the name Jesse James, you know, amongst themselves when they were in the midst of a robbery. And we'll talk about his, his alias, James Lafayette Courtney, who was your great-great-grandfather. And then, of course, you discover that James Courtney, Lafayette Courtney, was, in fact, the Jesse James. We'll uh, take another time out and uh, continue our discussion with Teresa and Daniel Duke, writers, researchers, great-great-grandchildren of Jesse James, co-authors of The Mysterious Life and Fake Death of Jesse James, Daniel, the, uh, the author of Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure, and the brand new book, Secret History of the Wild, Wild West. Stay with us. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant on Zoomer Radio. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant from Zoomer Radio. Teresa and Daniel Duke, siblings, writers, researchers, great-great-grandchildren of Jesse James. Um, so if if it wasn't Jesse James that was shot and killed by Bob Ford, who did he kill? We believe it was his cousin Wood Height. Jesse James' Wood Height. cousin Wood Height. Yeah. Did he look like Jesse James? Yes. Yeah. Said that he that they they um, had sim- uh, similarities in their appearance. 
Yeah, they, they were said to bore a strong resemblance to one another. But the interesting thing, the reason we believe that we came to believe that it was Wood um, his Wood Heights, his cousin, and he was killed, reports say, in 18, December of 1881, but his body wasn't recovered until around a couple days before the Jesse James was reportedly assassinated. So that's when his body was recovered. So it was just weird. What are the odds that Jesse James and his first cousin were both, you know, shot and killed in the same week? In allegedly the same manner. Um, there was, yeah. There, there was kind of a love triangle between uh, Bob Martha Ford's Bolton. sister. Charlie, Bob and Charlie had a sister named Martha Bolton. And she was having an affair with her farmhand, a man named Jim Gibson. And she was also having an affair with Wood Height. And uh, the way the story goes on that, uh, Wood and Jim met, you know, they were all there at Martha Bolton's house. It was during the winter or early spring, um, late winter, early spring. They got in a fight, and Jim, Wood Height shot Jim and killed him. And bought, there was a big blow-up. Wood shot Jim Gibson, the farmhand, and Bob and Charlie, many say it was Bob, shot um, shot Wood Height, and the bullet caught him in the back of the head. And then they said they buried him in a shallow grave because the ground was too hard and it was frozen solid, so they couldn't bury him deep. But Jim Gibson, the, his body is never mentioned, and nobody ever asked where his body was. I mean, he was he just disappeared from the face, you know, from history at that point. Uh, so then, you know, and knowing that Wood bore a strong resemblance, we believe Jesse took that. He didn't plan it. It it happened, and they used that as a way to get Jesse, um, basically for him to fake his death and get off yep. the hook. He had so one, wait a, a minute. lot of people. You're saying oh, that they, they exhumed Wood Heights' body, and again, he's buried in um, winter or late or, or early spring, so maybe the ground is still frozen, his body's still preserved and, and presentable enough to look like he was just killed in April of... But but then who does right. Bob Ford actually shoot, or did he shoot anyone? Uh, we believe Bob probably shot Wood Height, but he didn't... We, we definitely don't believe he shot Jesse James. No. Uh, oh, yeah. and another think, thing about... We think it was uh, like, just a great opportunity for them to... You know, this it it was presented his cousin, we believe, Wood Height, and it just was a great time for Jesse to, you know, finally get get away from all that, get out of that life. But, but just so I'm understanding the timeline here, so but Bob Ford in this part of this lover's spat with his there's he killed Wood Height in maybe uh, early spring or or winter. Not mm-hmm. on April third, eighteen eighty-two. So, did he, knowing that he had killed Wood Height and not Jesse James, did he go to the sheriff's department to claim a reward and 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 basically lied, saying, "I just killed Jesse James," knowing very well he had killed Wood Height, the cousin. I believe that's what he did. He they had okay. used that opportunity to to pass that off. He. He and Charlie got the reward. I think they thought they would be famous. It that blew up again. You know that that 
didn't go the way they wanted it to. Uh, they were painted in history as dirty little cowards, and it actually it didn't go well for Bob and Charlie. But what a lot of people don't realize is, and it's a known fact, Jesse Jesse had tried to fake his death in 1879, a couple of years earlier, and yeah. um, he with another gang member, they claimed that George Shepard shot him in the back of the head. And George Shepard rode into town asked, uh, you know, wanting the reward. He said, I killed Jesse. I'm here for the reward. Well, the sheriff sent out a posse looking for the body, and they never could find a body. So that, that fell apart, and everybody, nobody believed that Jesse had, had actually died. And then there were a lot of other rumors that Jesse had died, You'd see them in the papers, you know, going just researching the old articles. It got so bad that a and, and a, a journalist from Galveston, Texas, had said, you know, when uh, after the alleged killing of Jesse in 1882, the journalist said he died so many times nobody believed it anymore. So <laughs> it was it was there was a lot of confusion sown for several years up to that point. And yeah, it was brilliant. So, yeah. And then, and one other thing I'd like to say, we went to uh, St. Joseph, Missouri, the house where he was allegedly shot. And if they, they said he stood on a stool to straighten a sampler. Well, the ceiling was so low, you would have to be, he would have had to have been an extremely short man, like under five foot tall, to be able, you know, to have to stand on a stool to straighten a, a, a sampler in that room, which was... I, just wanted to point that out. He was even an, even a short man would have been able to to have done that without standing on a stool. But I think they said that to explain, try to explain away the reason he was shot at the angle he was in the back of the head. Ah, right, right. So your great great grandfather had started using an alias like something like sixteen years before. He was supposedly killed in 1882. Was it just the one alias, James Lafayette, uh, uh, Courtney? He used uh, or, that alias. Oh, go ahead. You know, or, or did he use other aliases? He was known to have used other aliases, but that was the alias he lived under in Texas. Uh, there's a lot. There's probably aliases he used that we may never know. Um, and then there's a lot of variations of aliases, but a lot of the men, even men who didn't go into outlawry, um, Quant, former Quantrell's guerrillas, for example, they changed their names because they didn't want to. They didn't want to get hunted down and and killed like a lot of their their former comrades had. So uh, maybe Teresa, I'll get you to handle this one. Who who was there was a real James Lafayette Courtney, right? That you, and your your great great granddad took his name, but who was the real James Courtney? Well, we, we believe that um, they were there was a familiar. They were related to the James, the real James L. Courtney, um, and they records indicate that he was a Union soldier, a. a a bugle. Uh, what was it, Danny? A bugler in the yep. Union, Union Army. But yeah. Um, so, yeah, we believe that that's how you know he knew of the James L. Courtney, and that's how he. They had a lot of connections with the Courtneys. Uh, they had neighbors who were Courtneys. They were related to the Courtneys, and we just believe that's uh, 
opportunity presented itself, and he took he took on that alias. And there were a lot of that side of the family would change their name from Courtney to Hawn and Andrus, and they they had changed their name several times, and um, it was it was it was hard following the the name changes. If we hadn't had family records and letters from all of them or from a lot most of them, it would have been near impossible to figure it all out. Um, so, before your mother Betty sort of connected the dots and realized that your great-great-granddad was was Jesse James, it was presumed that your great-great-grandfather's name was James Lafayette Courtney and your great-great-great-grandmother was not Zerelda James Samuel, but uh, Diana Andrus Courtney. Is that right? That's right. Yep, correct. So Jesse's mother also changed her name? Did she move to Texas with him or... How did she come to have that alias? Zarel, actually, that wasn't Zarelda's alias. That was uh, James Lafayette Courtney's mother was, you know, Diana Andrus Courtney. And they had moved to Tennessee, whereas Jesse's mother stayed in Missouri. Uh, she would travel. In fact, when she died, she was on her way back from Texas to Missouri and died on a train. Um, uh. it, and you know it was she was an elderly lady at the time, but she she would she traveled to Texas quite a bit. We even have a photo of her at Jesse's farm in Blevins, Texas, where when Frank married Annie Ralston. And Frank and, was Jesse's brother. Uh, we just have about a minute here. I just want to touch on this, uh, and we'll incidentally we'll continue this conversation into hour two with Teresa and Daniel Duke and take calls at the bar or calls or um, uh, questions from the live chat at the bottom of the next hour. There's a photograph in the book of Jesse James at his own funeral. Tell me about that. Well, so rumors always persisted. People said that Jesse James attended his own funeral. Um, But we can never find proof of that Um, until one night we were just, you know, doing our research and we came across this picture that said Jesse James, James's uh, funeral. And it was a picture of Grandpa, Grandpa Courtney with his mom and Frank in the picture. Um, So we believe we have a picture that proves he didn't attend his own funeral. So we were we were always trying to put that that rumor to rest to see if he really did attend it or if he didn't. And we believe we found the picture that said that he did it actually attend his own funeral. <laughs> wow, that's pretty brazen. All right, yeah. we'll uh, come back. We'll uh, head into hour two here with uh, Ter- Teresa and Daniel Duke, great-great-grandchildren of Jesse James, writers, researchers, and uh, back with more of our conversation right now. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio.
From Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thank you for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Carlos Kajina is our technical producer, and Ryan White is our live stream producer. Check out my YouTube and Rumble channels at Strange Planet. And we are discussing the mysterious life and faked death of the American outlaw Jesse James with two of his descendants, his great-great-grandchildren, Daniel and Teresa Duke. Uh, they're 20 years plus of uh, research, in addition to research by their late mother, Betty Dorset Duke, uh, led the led leads rather to the the rather inescapable conclusion that Jesse James was not killed by Bob Ford in April of 1882. That he faked his death, took on an alias James Lafayette Courtney, and lived out a very long life in Texas as a farmer. Again, Teresa and Daniel Duke, uh, the uh, co-authors of the mysterious life and faked death of Jesse James. Daniel Duke, the author of. Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure, and the brand new book, Secret History of the Wild, Wild West. Uh, just getting back to sort of the, you know, the mythos of Jesse James. How, uh, how did he, or why did he became known as America's Robin Hood? I mean, was he literally like, you know, taking from the rich and helping poor people? That's a good question. <clears throat> a good question. There, <clears throat> there were a lot of stories that Jesse had, uh, and some of these were myths. Some of those were also uh, based on stories by a, a journalist who was sympathetic to the James and Younger boys. Um, there, his name was John John Newman Edwards, and he he would write like it was a fiery journalistic voice. It was always in support of the James boys and how they were done wrong. Um, and like I've said before, I'm, I don't believe uh, they weren't – I don't think they were psychopaths and, you know, horrible, bloodthirsty killers like some have painted them. But I also, I also readily admit they weren't angels by any means. But um, there were stories that – like one lady had owed taxes, and uh, they, had, they were in that area. They heard the lady, you know, owed taxes. The taxpayer – the tax collector was coming to, to either get the money or take her farm. And Jesse, Jesse and his gang members gave her some money, told her to pay the taxpayer, and then they, they left and went and waited on the road. So after she paid the taxpayer, she got her receipt say, showing she paid the taxes. Uh, when he was riding back towards town, they robbed him and got their money back. And there was a lot of stories like that, but they're, they're hard to prove. But stories like that got around real quick, and people thought of Jesse as, as you know, a Robin Hood. And there was one quote by a Lord James I always loved. It was a Jesse James represented the, every man who'd ever felt the boot of the man on their neck. And I thought that that sentiment alone, along with the rumors, just seemed to seem to catapult them into legendary Robin Hood status. Right. And how much of the sort of the portray the sympathetic uh, version of Jesse James may have been fueled by in the South resentment during the Reconstruction era 
the the way that the you know the North treated the South. I mean, the, the slavery issue aside, I mean, there were let's face it, there were atrocities on both sides, and the Union during Reconstruction, uh, pretty true. harsh on That's on the true. South. How much do you think that the, the Reconstruction era sort of fueled the recasting of Jesse James as uh, as a hero and as a Robin Hood? I think it had a lot to do with it. I'm glad you mentioned that the, the Reconstruction era. Um, the, people lost, you know, everything they had. There were a lot of people who, if their business had been shown in some way to have supported the Confederacy, and when you're in in the Deep South and you're not supporting them, you look like a traitor. So you're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. But if they if their business had been shown in any way to have supported the Confederacy, the the, the North or what they call carpetbaggers would take their property from them. And so, you know, people were very bitter. Their livelihood was lost. They had nothing left. And that I'm sure stories like that did nothing but uh, serve the James gang and, and their reputation. So, well, and then, after, then there was a lot of oh, things, sorry. you know, like people, um, I've heard a, a few people also argue that I, I agree with the point. You know, there was slavery was horrible. I don't agree with that at all. Um, no. And, but at the same time, the Northern, you know, after the North won, they then went and wiped out a lot of Native American tribes. So it was, it was kind of, you know, like it, it was, it, it was you know, a bit hypocritical in ways. So people would see things like that. And I think that also helped tr- towards, you know, help support the, the James gang story. As of 1882, when, when, um, Jesse faked his death. Do we have any idea what kind of a uh, a fortune he and the gang had amassed? Uh, in you know, when you add up all of the train robberies and the bank robberies and the steamboat robberies and stagecoach robberies, how much how much loot did they end up with? That's a good question. I'm trying to remember the figures. Uh, every time I think of that, I always think it doesn't add up to all the um, the amounts of gold he was said to have buried in single catches. Um, yeah, like one, you know, every, one was like, like the first one, Liberty was like 60,000. Um, there were others that were like in the amount of 3,000. So, I mean, I don't know the exact amount, but I mean, I do think that they got away with, you know, quite a large sum. Just that first one, 60,000 for back in the 18, you know, in the 1800s was, you know, that's a lot of money back then. That would have to be worth several million dollars in today's dollars, I would think. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it I was so. just that one bank robbery. Was, yeah, it was a lot. And did they did they divvy up things? I mean, was it was the, the, the James gang, was it a dictatorship with Frank and Jesse uh, ruling the roost? Or was there, I don't know, did they divvy up things? Democratically, uh, how did the gang run? The way I understood it, they always uh, it was it was basically modeled after the way they did things when they were riding with Quantrill. Um, but I think they were a little more democratic than that. They just they seemed to they would discuss a, a target and basically vote on whether they thought it was right or not. And they had they had the right to to sit out on one or not. Um, 
most of them, you know, they had the attitude, we ride together. But at the same time, there were times where they would also split up and hit multiple targets in in the same areas within days of each other and sometimes on the same day. So it was that's that's another thing that also led to confusion. I think it was a great guerrilla tactic. They probably learned during the Civil War. Um, it, it, people want, people would attribute it to Je- Jesse, and yet sometimes it was Wood Height leading leading a group that rode into town, or Cole Younger, or Frank James. So it was right, always the they, they didn't know <laughs> exactly who they were chasing. But for some reason, it was Jesse who seemed to stand out. I mean, with history, like I always say, you know, he had a brother, Frank, <laughs> but you don't hear about Frank James much or like the youngers. I mean, you know, there's little bits throughout the history books on them, but it always seemed to focus on Jesse and that, you know, I don't, I don't know why, you know, it worked out that way, but it panned out that way, but it all seems to be focused more on Jesse. Right. And so by I, I um, April of 1882, when, when Jesse fakes his death, Wood Height uh, becomes Jesse James and is, you know, take put put into the ground. Uh, and that's supposedly the end of Jesse James. Jesse James heads to Texas um, as James Lafayette Courtney. Uh, who's left in the James gang? And, and does I mean, does all of that money revert to? To Jesse, or does Frank also have a, a big portion of that? Did they flee together? What happened? And which I didn't hear which one you were talking about. Was that after oh, Minnesota? Jesse, well, Jesse and Frank. When 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 Jesse fakes his death in 1882, is Frank in on it? Does Frank flee with Jesse? What happened? No. So Frank um, ended up going to trial after the supposed. Um, assassination of Jesse James and ended up being acquitted of all charges. So we found that really interesting. So he didn't ever have to go into hiding, Frank James. How is it possible to heal alluded charges? charges? That's a good Uh, question. They had had a lot. Oh, Oh, sorry. No, you go ahead, Teresa. Uh, He was, um, they took him to trial for I want to say it was the murder of some, I don't remember who, but he was brought up mm-hmm. in like, you know, the the robbery charges, but also uh, murder charges. And he ended up being acquitted of everything. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't have to go into hiding. And then I think That's- he died. I want to say Frank James, he lived to be fairly old, but I think he died in like, wasn't it like 1910 or something, Danny, or 1915? I thought it was 1919. I mean, I got yeah, yeah, I can't remember exactly, but long story right. short, he didn't have to go into hiding like Jesse did. Was he aware yeah, that Jesse was on, that had faked his death? I'm, I'm sorry, you'll have to repeat that. Did Frank know that, that Jesse had, had, in fact, faked his death? I, yes. Uh, well, I, and that's a good question. I always wondered if he knew right away or how long it took him to find out, because there were a lot of rumors, rumors flying around. And I'm sure that ha- that happens during any event like similar to that, that uh, Frank was on his way to town and people were going to pay. 
Um, and then I, I have a feeling he may not have known until he got in the area. He probably t- spoke to one of his friends, fellow gang members, or or one of his family members and found out. Uh, and then when he found out, he backed off. I'm not sure how that would have worked out, but um, that that's a good question. I've always wondered, and my guess, my best guess would be that he, he got word from some a trusted source, and that's when he, he – he found out. So how do we pick up the trail um, from St. Joseph, Missouri in April of 1882 uh, to James Lafayette Courtney, gentleman farmer in Texas, uh, who lived right up until the, the 1940s, I believe. Uh, how did you pick yeah. up that trail and how do you how do we find out that that's he was Jesse James? Can I say one thing before we move on to that? It's yes. it's regarding Frank and his wife Ann Ralston. Um, she they did a she she they did a uh, news story with her shortly before she died, and she made the comment. She was ninety one when she died, but she made the comment that the true story of Frank and Jesse would go to the grave with her. So I do think, I think that they had to be in on it as well. Frank, I think he personally did know about Jesse's, you know, that he did fake his death and and move to Texas because she moved to Texas as well. Ann Ralston, and Ann Ralston later Sorry. after Frank Ann, died. Who was Ann Ralston? Frank James's wife. Ah, okay. Yeah, right. and she they did an article with her. Um, couple of months before she died, she was 91, but she did, um, she did state that the, the true story of Jesse and Frank would go to the grave with her. Ah, okay. So That's I think that yeah. he probably, I personally think that, you know, Frank was in on it the whole time. Right. Okay. That's my opinion. So, <laughs> take, a, take us from uh, St. Joseph, Missouri to... James Courtney uh, Lafayette's, or sorry, James Lafayette Courtney's uh, farm in Texas. Okay. Uh, well, Jesse had been living in Texas since 1871. Uh, he met, he came to Texas, met my third great grandfather, Thomas Hudson Barron, who was a captain with the Texas Rangers. And when I heard that, I thought, okay, this is wild. But it was known, our late mother had found uh, proof that. And there were there were uh, old wanted posters of four wanted posters for Jesse and Frank and the Youngers saying that they were known to have ridden with Texas Rangers around the Dallas Texas area. So and you know I thought well it's not actually that strange because they were they'd all fought on the same side during the war and some of them probably fought together. Uh, some of the Texas and a lot of Texas Rangers, especially back in those days, had ridden both sides of the the fence, so to speak, uh, that some, many of them used to be outlaws and then became lawmen, and some would just jump back and forth throughout their career. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. So, Fascinating. Yeah, it was, it was always, I always thought that was pretty interesting. But um, they, in 1871, and we have his diary from 1871 up through 1876, and, and it wasn't a normal diary. Like, he didn't talk about his feelings. It was more of a day book. <laughs> he just spoke, you know, he'd write down the facts. <laughs> So, but he mentioned where, you know, places everywhere he'd gone, 
Uh, he even signed his name Jesse, J. James, and also uh, J. W. J. His initials, which were Jesse Woodson James. He would, and he'd written the name James L. J. L. Courtney many times on on the back, uh, almost as if he were practicing that new signature. But in addition to that, he'd mentioned uh, known gang members that he'd ridden with that lived in that area at different times, and a lot of different facts that actually served. Without that that day book, we wouldn't have been able to to crack a lot of that. So you know, it was uh, the confusion was caused by him because he needed to, but just to get away and and you know live a peaceful life. But at the same time. His day book also unopened and unraveled a lot of that confusion. Uh, but so to get back he, to your he married, question, settled down, and and where was his spread? Where in Texas? Where was his farm? It was Blevins, Blevins Texas, Texas, which is Levin. Yeah, it was Blevins, Texas, and it was uh, not too far from Waco, Texas. Yeah, it's about probably a, well back then it would have been about a day's ride southeast of Waco, Texas. Now it's yeah. about an hour. How many acres? 180. Uh I think it was it was 180 acres that he purchased from his father-in-law Thomas Barry. And did he, he buy it with gold or? <laughs> He purchased it with gold, all with gold. I think he it was $800 and he paid for it all in gold coins. They said wow. when he rode into Texas, he had saddlebags with gold coins. And um, what kind of a farmer was he? He wasn't. He didn't ever seem too busy based on his day book. He was always it was always someone else doing the work, or or he would just he didn't seem busy at all. I mean, he would do things like you know brand a calf, things like that. And a lot of the time, he was going into town and buying things for his wife and children but it, he didn't he didn't seem he would cut like a half an acre uh of tall grass or reeds and and different things like that but it wasn't a whole lot of work especially for those times i mean usually a farmer was working from sun up to sun down and he seemed to live pretty leisurely right but he didn't need to work because he had well, what, do we know what 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 was he worth in terms of? Well, let's just look at the gold. Uh, how much did he owe, did he have like buckets of gold around the house? Yeah, buried, he, he yeah, had, he had uh, gold buried, and he also there's a story about his son. His son's name was Byron Byron Courtney, but um, he gave a job to Byron to count. He had gold in a trunk. And every day he would have Byron count that gold every day to make sure, I guess, that no one was dipping into it. But he had, that was one story, he had a trunk full of gold in his house. And he would also bury gold in jars in his yard. Wow. And Um, he also had, like, new, he, he was fond of the Ford cars. And every year right. he would have a new car on hand. Like he he had to have a new car. He was always buying new Ford vehicles back then. <laughs> what was he concerned? Did he um, did he think that one day someone's gonna you know catch up with me and figure out figure all of this out? I mean, was he nervous that oh, he was he, going to be 
apprehended? We, I believe so, and I think Danny can agree with me on this, but in his journal, people would come to his farm and they would introduce themselves, and he would always say in the journal, or so they say, like he, to me, that seemed like he was paranoid. Like they would come introduce themselves for whatever reason that they were going out to visit on the farm. And then he would say, so-and-so came today. And then he would say their names and then it would say, or so they say, like he just, I felt like there was a hint of paranoia with anybody who would come to his farm. Well, and also when he would, uh, when people, if someone rode up to his house after dark, he would always blow out all the candles or all the lanterns in the house, and he would lay, he would draw his gun and lay down across the floor next to the front door. So I, I was assuming if that was if they came in, they'd trip over him, and I don't think they would expect somebody someone shooting from the floor if that's what they were planning on doing. He seems pretty paranoid. Yeah. Right. How was he, he was also, it with, with a gun? How was uh, he with a gun? They also, yeah. he did get the attention of the government because they were always sending him letters wanting to know how he had the, the all the assets that he had. So we do have some letters where the government was like, explain this, how you have this and how you have that. <laughs> so <laughs> he did have to do with, deal with that as well. How was he with a gun? Oh, um, there was actually we had an eyewitness account or eyewitness to that uh, that we had met. His name was George Roaming. He's passed since. It, uh, George was a young boy when Jesse was an older man, and I was thrilled to just meet someone who had spoken to Jesse. Um, George grew up in the area. He was about ten, nine or ten years old, and he said Jesse would wave to him up, you know, to come sit on the porch with him and have lemonade. And um, George said Jesse would talk to him, and he was always scared to death of him just because he said he was a big man with a big hat and a great big mustache, and he always had a big gun next to him. So uh, he said one day Jesse told him to, to carry a stone out 40 paces across the yard and set it down. And when George got back, he said Jesse stood up, stepped off the porch, and before his foot hit the ground, he shot the rock. You know, he just drew his pistol and shot it. And he was in his 80s at the time. So, you know, that that's a I'd, – I'd say he was a very good shot. There were also stories that uh, before they would have if, – if his wife wanted to cook chickens, some chicken for the family, he would get on his horse sometimes and show off for his kids, and he would ride by at full, full gallop and shoot the head off of a chicken. So <laughs> I'd say it was a good shot. Sounds like it. All right, we'll uh, take another time out. And um, if you're in the live chat, get your questions and comments ready. And my live stream producer, uh, Ryan, will curate those and send those on to me. And uh, I'll uh, I'll put those questions to Teresa and Daniel Duke as we continue our discussion on the uh, outlaw, Jesse James. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. The truth will set you free. But first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740. 
or toll free 1-866-740-4740. And we are back with Teresa and Daniel Duke, great, great grandchildren of the outlaw Jesse James, who faked his death in April of 1882 and uh, lived under the alias James Lafayette Courtney as a farmer in uh, Texas. Uh, how long did he live? Seven. In ni- he, it was in uh, 1943 when he died. And I'm sorry, how old was he again? 97. 97. Wow. Mm-hmm. And uh, how many children did he have? Teresa? Like seven, seven total? He had, he had seven children. Yeah, and we also and, know that there are other diaries out there. Um, we don't have those in our possessions, but what I find interesting is he had such a long life. Um, he would mention things like an air, like an airplane, and he would put it in his journal. He would call it a flying machine. Just went over his house. Like <laughs> those are the things I would love to see because. You know, just seeing this outlaw who was from the, you know, Civil War time in the Western days. And I would love to see those journals that mentioned, you know, like his first, when he drove his first car or, you know, that, seeing a plane in the sky. It's just things like that, that. That's what I would, I would just love to see. I would love to find those journals and see that for myself. That There's just so much history a span of history in there you know that you just can't get in a lot of stuff and he had a he had a lot of history right right um let's go to the uh the youtube live chat with some questions here and we're going to begin with not gordian as in gordian not not gordian asks what happened to jesse james revolvers that's a good question there are I think most of them probably are scattered to the the ends of the earth, but there were a couple we've seen. Uh, there was one we know for a fact was his, and we tried to. The, at the time, the man wanted the man who owned it um, lived about two miles from where Jesse's farm was. He wanted more than we had at the time, but he said he would hold on to it. And before, it, right right when we got the money to get it. Um, he had passed away, and his family upped the price. They they increased the price threefold, so we, we never got it. Uh, Would there be any way of authenticating that pistol? We did. We we got the well. We did it. We did as much as we could, and it it li- everything about the pistol lined up with everything we knew about Jesse. But mm-hmm. he also carved inside the handle were the initials of other known gang members. And it just seemed to, we would have to, of course, we would want to take it to professionals so they would be able to, to examine it and make sure. But it, it, everything about it seemed right on the money. Did he let anyone in on the, on the secret in, in, in Texas? Any of it, did he ever tell his children or did he, did he have a, a best friend, a confidant in, in Blevins, Texas that he actually said, you know what, you know, maybe over a beer, or too many beers. I was. I'm Jesse James. 
We believe some of his family members knew. Like, it was passed down in our family through his daughter, Ida. Um, She knew, and that's how it was passed down through us. I mean, we've heard it our entire lives. My mom heard it when she was a kid, and, you know. Yeah, and a lot of the gang members, well, some of the gang members and a lot of the former Quantrill guerrillas who had ridden with him lived all around that area. And George knew, Danny. Yeah, I know George. Yeah, that's true. George knew. Yeah. Uh, George is actually George? the uh George was the former World War Two vet I'd I'd mentioned earlier that we met. Um uh, he was talk he was the one who told me the story of Jesse shooting the rock. Uh George was sworn to secrecy by Jesse before he uh, Jesse hired him to help him move seven hundred bars of gold about eighteen to twenty miles from Jesse's house. Wow. All right. Uh, Robert S. Scott asks, do Daniel and Teresa have to deal with any backlash due to the family connection with Jesse James? I've met. Yeah. There was. Sorry, Danny. (laughs) Oh, go go ahead. Well, there was a man I met at my first book signing. And uh, he, I didn't know what to think, really. I, I didn't expect it. The guy came up and said, you know, your, your, your ancestor shot my ancestor and killed him. What do you think of that? And I didn't know what to say. I, you know, I, I, we did, I just said, well, I guess he should have been a better shot. And I didn't know. I, that, that, I, in hindsight, I would have said it differently. But uh, that, just little things like that. I don't really know how you would. I'm, I'm not going to apologize for something I didn't do. But, exactly. But, uh, right. I've heard people criticize it and, um, you know, people, people who find it fascinating and, you know, I've, I've just learned to come to the, you know, just come to the realization that, you know, everyone's gonna, we have the facts laid out in the books. We have documented, you know, evidence pointing to him being Jesse James and some people, can see it and believe it, and then there's others who are, who just don't want to acknowledge any of it. So, uh, you know, was there any any consideration to exhuming the um, the grave? It, it, you know, in fact, it determining whether it's it, it was Wood Height or or Jesse James. Was there a exhumation? Oh yeah, in 1995, uh, the James farm and museum and people associated with that hired uh, Professor James E. Stars, who was a law professor from the University of, of George, from Georgetown University. Um, and he, he had no back. He had his hobby was forensics, but he wasn't a professional in that field, which I thought was interesting. If you're, you know, anything dealing with history, they should have a, profe- a professional doing it, someone who was qualified in that field. But they hired a law professor to do this. Um, and no pun intended, but our late mother shot that whole exhumation full of holes. It was, it, there was m- multiple mistakes. I mean, it was enough mistakes they made to fill several chapters, um, and including uh, Stephen Caruso, who was the attorney. He was a Clay County attorney at the time. Uh, telling, he told my mother and I in person that it was a tawdry sideshow, and he's even said that on film. Um, he said the hair they tested was 
he was ordered by the court. He 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 held the sample of Jesse's hair, and uh, in you know for the museum. Well, the the court had ordered him to turn the hair over to James Stars, and he said he didn't trust the guy. So instead of turning that hair over, he pulled the hair out of the Clay County Parks Director's hair, John Hartman, out of his head and submitted that. And the, the what made me laugh. I mean, it's sad that that it got that messed up. But he, they tested that hair, and on a documentary claimed that was Jesse's hair, or or met all the requirements to be Jesse's hair. And I thought that's insane. I mean, the, he he pulled his friend's hair, and the tooth they tested. Stephen Caruso said, "I can guarantee you, it had similar origins," but he wouldn't say where the tooth came from. In other words, it didn't come from the body in the in the grave, supposedly. You know, belonging to Jesse James, it came from somewhere exactly. else. Exactly. Exactly. Right. All right. Uh, uh, Weiwei Anella asks, uh, "Do you think the Clint Eastwood movie, The Outlaw Josie Wales, was based on Jesse James' life story?" I hear similarities between the movie plot and Jesse's story. I do think that. I think it was very. It was reading, watching Josie Wales was almost. It, it was very close, almost identical to the story of not only Jesse, but a lot of the other uh, gorillas who rode with him. Uh, all right. Um, we just have about a minute, uh, two minutes or a minute and a half here. I want to just talk briefly, and, you know, we have to have you back on and, and talk about the uh, the gold and the fact that he hit gold all over the place uh, and left maps and um, but and you alluded to this earlier, Teresa, when you were talking about there was this higher purpose behind these bank robberies. It wasn't just you know take these ill-gotten go- uh, gains and and for their own personal benefit. So first right. of all, let's talk about the uh, the maps uh, that you have in your possession. Okay. Um, well, you know when my mom first started uh, her research, um, her aunt gave her one of Grandpa Courtney's maps. Um, she just gave it to her to continue with the research, and she was hoping that maybe she would eventually find the treasure from the map. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we have some of his maps, you know, and hopefully one day we'll find some treasure out of it. But if not... It's just, it's still interesting just knowing that we have some of his maps. But we do know that he buried a lot of his stuff under his house in Texas. And um, a lot of his kids were try- always trying to dig up the gold. Even when he died and they were burying him, his son, Byron Courtney, instead of attending his own father's funeral, was trying to dig up the gold, some of the gold in his, at his house. Uh, we'll go back to the uh, YouTube live chat question in just a moment, but I just wanted to, to talk some more about the uh, the maps uh, where he uh, well he buried gold. I mean, where where primarily did according to these maps did he bury this gold? Well, that was a, when the map was passed down. Uh, every, a lot of people in the family had looked looked for it before they even before it made it into our late mother's hands. And we gave a shot at it, it you know, and I, it was hard just because it was geometrical designs, had a lot of dashes, and he had some code written in there. 
and the code wasn't too hard to to finally figure out. It was just uh, numbers substituted for letters and vice versa. But we we would you know, he would base it on the alphabet backwards or the alphabet forwards and different different things like that. But the hard part was there were no geographic markers. It was uh, just just a geometrical designs drawn down with numbers and amounts of gold and silver and even greenbacks. He called them greenbacks that he had buried. Um, so there was no starting point like, you know, 40 paces north of the old oak tree. It was just it was just a design, and you had to know a lot of backstory. There was a lot of questions. So I got, you know, I put that on the back burner, and over time, uh, like George Roaming, the elderly gentleman who knew Jesse when Jesse was old and George was young, um, he had told this about another site, the one that he had helped Jesse move uh, 700 bars of gold uh, close to 20 miles away from Jesse's house. So that gave us another spot, and I thought, okay, I need at least one more location if I could, you know, in that in that sense, to try to figure out where he had it. If there, if there was any rhyme or reason to, to the areas where he would bury them. And that, a few years later, that, that got answered when a former attorney general for the state of Texas, Wagner Carr, um, had sent his driver out. He was talking to our late mother a lot on the phone about Jesse, and he was also interested in the gold. Well, he sent his driver out to show my mother and I where several large catches were buried. And after I plotted those on the map, I noticed it, met, it, it it all fell in line with a template. And that template, over time, it, it just working on it for years, it finally all fell into place. And it covered. It's a grid system that covers not only Texas, but most of the Americas. Um, not every spot on the grid has a treasure on it, but in an area where a treasure is, it's it's right on the grid. Any treasure that they had buried or their organization, uh, which ties into Freemasons and others. Um, any treasure they had buried, was all the, the grid was right on the money. And not only with that, but also areas of historical interest, kind of like uh, Scott Walter's Hooked, um, Hooked X, the rune stone. It, yes. it falls on that grid. Uh, Fortis King asks from the YouTube live chat, well, um, about this gold, how much... And is there still any around today? So according to these maps, because he sort of itemized the amount of gold and silver, how much is how much buried treasure is out there? I think there's still a lot out there. Um, there were large catches that were very large, kind of like Victoria Peak in New Mexico, where there was over at the time in the 1940s, it was valued at around three billion dollars, which would be three. Billion? I don't know Excuse how much. Me, Daniel, did you say three billion that's right. $3 billion. And LBJ even had his hands in that, too, uh, later on. But it, <laughs> it was that was a lot of money, $3 billion. I can't – I don't know how much that would be worth today, but I, I, uh, that's, that's enough to set a person up and generations of a family for a long time. But that was one, and that one was recovered. Um, there were a lot of, of – few other very large ones like that around the americas but i think the smaller ones even a even a jar full of gold like an old mason jar would be a small fortune and that'd be enough to set most people up for the rest of their life those those gold caches that were discovered and you say lbj had a hand in one were they were they verified as 
belonging to Jesse James? No, that one wasn't. That that predated Jesse. It even predated the found the founding of America. Um, uh, that one, I think that people people have. There were rumors that uh, Victorio, the chief Victorio, chief of the Apaches, had buried it there after killing, you know, or, or robbing wagon trains. And I thought, there's no way he buried $3 billion worth of gold deep in a cavern, and it was smelted gold bars. And what pioneer would have been traveling with smelted gold bars? If they had that, they would have had enough money to sell around the horn and, you know, or, you know just to sell around instead of cross it in a wagon. All right, a few minutes remain with Teresa and Daniel Duke, brother and sister, research writer team, uh, residing in the great state of Texas and laying out an incredibly compelling case that their great-great-grandfather, who uh, went by the name of James Lafayette Courtney, was in fact the outlaw Jesse James. And... um, let me go back to the uh, the YouTube live chat here with uh, a question from Rob asking, who owns Jesse's farm now? That would be Clay County, Missouri. It's a county up in a, well, they're about mm, 30 minutes north of Kansas City, Missouri. I think he's referring to the, the farm in Texas. My apology. I should have clicked. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, the farm in Texas would be owned. It was owned. <laughs> I don't know if I should say the man's name, but it's, uh, when Jesse died, um, uh, several of his children got in a big fight, legal fight over who got the the farm. They were fighting. Uh, they got lawyers. The lawyers ended up getting it, and they sold it to a family who could, who owns it to this day. Um, I don't know if I should say their name online. No, no, the name's not important, but it's not. It's out, okay. It's no longer in in the the Courtney. Um, Family, let's put it that way, that's, or the Duke that's family. That's right. That's and is true. there a lot of squabbling over the? Uh, I mean, you have a map. Do are there other descendants of Jesse James who claim that they also have a map? And is there is has this caused any friction in the family? The only the main friction um, we've had were some of my my cousins. Will, you know, they'll come out and they want to know more. But they only care about the gold. They don't care about the history behind it. And they usually just, you know, if, if they want to know that if I ever find any, that they get their share. And they seem to think they're owed a share just because they're descended. And and it's not just that. It, they they had approached some of them, had approached our late mother and asked her if there was ever a movie made on her book, uh, if she was going to share any any money she got with them from a movie. And they had never bothered to help research or anything, but they they sit back and watch, and they just want to cut of the money because they're related. They don't want to do the work to actually help. So that that's the part. That's where the the fighting had come in a little, not much. But we just mom just told them, no, you didn't help, you didn't donate, you didn't offer to help, so you're not owed anything. And if you were to find that. any of that gold, uh, is there? I mean. It, would you have to turn that over to the U.S. Treasury because it was stolen? I don't. That's a good question. I've never. Um, we always. Well, have, our idea was to give it back to the Freemasons. <laughs> so. Yeah. That's what we always. We were like, what would we do if we find the treasure? And we always said to, like, you know, give it back to the Freemasons because we know that they would probably, you know, give it out. They would do good with it, like charities and. Uh, you know, good de- good things with the the treasure that 
they, you know, Jesse and them took. But I don't know. That's what we, we always ask that question. What would we do if we found it? So R.E. asks, R.E. on the live chat asks, is there a connection between Jesse James and the Knights Templar? I mean, you're, the the title of um, your your uh, book, your sec- the second book, Jesse mm-hmm. James and the Lost Templar Treasure. And Daniel, you've been on with me before and we've mm-hmm. discussed this. Uh, mm-hmm. And there are all of these strange sort of Masonic symbols on these maps. And is so is there a connection between Jesse and the, and the Knights Templar? There are, the, through the uh, Freemasons, uh, Jesse under his alias was a Freemason here in Texas. And I don't know when his first contact with Freemasonry was. I, I suspect it was during the Civil War, just because um, Albert Pike was a brigadier general who was often in Arkansas and Oklahoma. And there's documented records showing that, that Quantrill's men would be in a, they would share a camp with Albert Pike and his men at different times. So I don't know if that's when Jesse became acquainted with Freemasonry or not, but under his alias, he was a Mason, and I traced Masonry back. Um, you can trace the, even a lot of Masons. There's rumors and, and people who aren't, weren't too sure about it, but I was very confident after the research in, in my first book, the Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure, I showed that Freemasonry connects directly back to the Templar through uh, Sir Francis Bacon, his mentor, John Dee, and it goes back through various uh, alchemists, Rosicrucians, um, Jewish rabbis, all the way back to the uh, a rabbi known as Rashi, who was a favored court guest of Hugh de Champagne, um, one of the founders of the, the Templar. And, and the thing, when I wrote the book, I thought, okay, people are really going to think I've I've gone off the deep end here, but what what made my day, it made my, my entire decade, all the decades I've researched this, was the current Grand Master of the Knight Templar, Timothy Hogan, wrote a glowing endorsement for that book, and it's printed on the book, and it's saying that I have indeed cracked part of the code dealing with the treasures and the Knight Templar, well, the Knight Templar and the treasures from the temple in Jerusalem. And that that just made my day. So, do you think it's that that big from, gold cache of th- worth three billion dollars was that in fact Templar treasure that the Templars brought over from Europe because they were being persecuted and pursued by the Vatican because of their, you know, they were they were challenging the the power of kings and queens. They had so much wealth. There's some theory yeah. that they, you know they deposited some of that treasure at Oak Island off of Nova Scotia and buried it elsewhere in the Americas. Uh, I think the, the, the intention was, you know, that gold would be used to, to create, turn America into the new Jerusalem or something to that effect. Was that yeah. $3 billion yeah. cash of gold, not Templar gold? I believe that part of it was. Um, I, I would think a large part of it probably was. Um, not only that catch, but also in Williamsburg, Virginia, uh, the alleged catch in Nova Scotia, which is also on the grid pattern, the the template. Uh, there's a lot of different treasures that were that came from, I believe, France and well, ultimately originated from the the temple, the Templar treasures. So did did your great great grandfather Jesse James think that he was then part of that tradition and that he also was burying gold to be used for that higher purpose that you alluded to earlier, was. Teresa? I believe yeah, he knew he was part of that. Yep, I do believe that he 
he was a part of, you know, I, I believe it was all carried down um, within the organization, and he was a part of it and a part of the the goal for the higher purpose to be used later on down in the future. Although I'm not sure what it is their plans are for in the future, though. <laughs> But um, I do believe it was for a higher purpose. Going back to the uh, YouTube live chat, you betcha asks, uh, what are your favorite myths, lores, etc. about Jesse James? Any stories in particular that should be taken with a grain of salt? <laughs> That's a good question. Oh God, there's a lot of there's a lot of favorite favorite stories trying to pick one is is harder than i thought it would be well the robin hood legends i thought were were interesting they're funny one in particular right off the top of my head the robbery of akabak the akabak brothers bank in Corridon, iowa always gave me a laugh because uh they they had ridden into town to rob the bank they get to town the streets are empty everybody's on the other side of the town listening to uh, Henry Clay Dean give a speech, and Mark Twain had mentioned Henry Clay Dean. He was a famous uh, fiery orator. Uh, he was a filthy man, but he gave great speeches. So he drew the whole town to the other the other side of town. He's given a speech. The James boys waltz in, rob the bank, no resistance. They leave, and as they're leaving, they ride by the crowd and say, hey, the bank was just robbed. People in the crowd turned around and shushed them. They didn't because they wanted. They didn't want them interrupting the speech, and the gang just rode on out of town. By the time the the town found out the bank was robbed, they were long gone. <laughs> How about you for you, Teresa? Any uh, that's that's a great that's a good one. How about for you, Teresa? A famous piece of Jesse James lore. Um, I think for me, it's just the the fact that in the guerrilla days, um. Jesse was always, according to the legends, he was always, he was a daredevil. Hat showed no fear, and he was always the front and center and taking on the other side with no fear. Um, and I don't know, I find that fascinating. That's, I, I like to think that he was like a daredevil like that. No fear. Uh, he was bold. <laughs> R. Davis asks, are there any ties with from Jesse James to Italian royalty? That's a good question. That is a good I, question. I'm not sure. That's I'm not sure why, why he's, he's with, trying to make that intriguing. connection or why she's trying to make that connection. Have you heard that before? I haven't. Mm-mm. All right, but I'm not it's sure exactly. But definitely something to check into. Well, I do know okay. one. Well, not Italian royalty. I have heard of uh, connections with some people, some more recent outlaws from the 30s and 40s who had had ties allegedly, but they weren't so much mafia or Italian, but they were tied in with. Uh, they they were connected to some Italian mafia, but not Italian royalty that that I know of. What about Jesse James and the other great outlaw, Billy the Kid? Any connection there? Oh yeah, uh, Billy Billy and Jesse had met 
in Las Vegas, New Mexico, in 1879, um, and that, that was well documented. They had they had allegedly met to to discuss teaming up to form a new gang, and that didn't happen. But what I found interesting was just within a couple of years of that meeting, they both were allegedly assassinated by people they had ridden with and shot in the back, or mm. shot in certain you know similar circumstances and it almost makes me wonder if that wasn't planned because there's a lot of uh there's a lot of evidence on that billy had also faked his death and i don't know how i can't guarantee you know i haven't i haven't researched that in depth like we have the jesse james story but it just it makes me really curious all right. A final point. R. Davis, who was asking about a connection to an Italian um, monarchy, he I'm just looking in the YouTube live chat. He says, I have documents. So, R. Davis, if you want to, can they contact you through the website, either of you? Um, yeah. Is it author, yeah, author Dan Dukes? Yeah, we'd love to see that. Okay. So, um, R. Davis, yeah, go to the, uh, the website. I've linked up to it at uh, strangeplanet.ca. Just click on Daniel and uh, Teresa's name, and that'll take you to the website, and you can contact them. I'm sure they'd like to see uh, or know more about these documents connecting their great-great-grandfather, Jesse James, with Italian royalty. Well, the uh, the two hours have flown by. We'll have to do it again. Wow. Uh, there's so much more to discuss in the secret of the uh, the wild, wild west. Teresa and Dan, thank you so much. Thanks for having thank us. You. It's an honor. My pleasure. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to... Uh, Carlos and Ryan back next week with another one. Hope you'll be along for the ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.